Good morning. It is so fun to see all of you here. I love seeing those smiling faces. I'm so glad that you are a part of Women in the Word. And I just want to praise God saying, God, you are great and you are good. I'm so glad that you're here. And this is going to be the last week that we're going to be teaching the Bible study in River City. Um, Now... You all know by now that Christ Chapel is putting on a production of The Music Man. It is excellent. My husband and I saw it last week, and it is just outstanding in every way. The um, actors and the music and the dancers and everything is really amazing. And like Shelley said last time, there was sort of a little theme for her, the trouble in River City as she gave her lament. Well, there's also confession in The Music Man. When he makes his confession, um, he's kind of a shyster, con man, trickster. When he confesses that, his life changes. So we can see confession there. And the other interesting thing to me, which this will tell you something about myself that's probably a little unfavorable, but I never realized, I never watched Music Man all the way through, obviously, because I never realized that the song, Till There Was You, came from The Music Man. I just thought it was The Beatles. And so... (laughs) I've been thinking that song and humming it all week long, and then I realized it's a great love song to our Lord, because that's kind of what happens when we experience Jesus for the first time. There were birds on the hill, I'm not going to sing it, and I never heard them singing till there was you. I never heard them at all till there was you, and that's kind of what it's like when we come to know Jesus as our Savior. All of a sudden, we come alive and everything else does too. We see sunsets and sunrises, and we hear birds singing. And we see the flowers. I'm Deb Haygood, and it is a great privilege for me to be here this morning talking about Psalm 51. This is our fourth week in our series, Shout to the Lord. And I suggested that very first week that you might try reading the psalm out loud. Or even more boldly, making up a tune and singing the psalm. And so I'm back to find out if any of you have done that. So will you be honest enough to let me know if you have read it out loud or sung the psalm? Anyone done that out there? Okay, I see a few hands. Thank you. Good. I hope that was uh, meaningful and helpful to you. Maybe a few more of you would want to do it before I get up next time and uh, see. Anyway, I hope hope that uh, is something that's uh, been a good thing for you as you try to do that. The psalms are prayers that were sung in temple worship. They were meant to be sung. And these psalms are prayers. And in the psalms, we see prayers with all different emotions in all kinds of situations and circumstances. As we read and study these prayers, we are drawn into prayer ourselves. And I've heard some testimonies about that, and it's so thrilling for me. We're motivated to talk to God with our own honest words and emotions when we're studying the psalms. So far, we've looked at Psalm 19. It was a psalm of meditation. David was meditating on God's revelation of himself in nature and in his word. And then we looked at a praise psalm of David, Psalm 18. And we, uh, Psalm 18 gave us a view of God that can help us experience trials with faith. And last week, we looked at a prayer of lament. It was written by Moses. And it motivated me to talk to God about how to use my days wisely. Today we're looking at a psalm of confession. Psalm 51 is a very well-known psalm, and how helpful this psalm has been throughout the centuries in giving God's people words to shout out to God 
in those times of grief over our sin, in those times that we need to confess our wrongdoing to the Lord. Not only does Psalm 51 give us words to lift up to God, but Psalm 51 teaches us some great truths about God, foundational truths that he is loving and forgiving and uh, merciful. And then thirdly, this psalm encourages us. It gives us confidence to believe that God can and will forgive us our sin because he forgave David his sins. So this morning, look for those three things as we study through Psalm 51. Look at that pattern for uh, confession, that pattern of prayer in our lives. And uh, look at those foundational truths that you see there about God. And then thirdly, let yourself be drawn into confession with the confidence that God does forgive sin. Confession is good for the soul. Now you all have probably heard that quote many times. I tried to find out who said it first, but I couldn't find the author of that. But it's very, very popular. You've heard it. Confession is good for the soul. And I've been thinking about that quote many times this week, a great deal, and wondering why is that? Why is confession good for the soul? I think 51 is going to give us the answer as we look at it. One thing I do know about confession, it's certainly not easy. At least it's not easy for me. Do you find it easy to go to God in confession? Some of you probably farther down your journey than I am do, but it's not easy for me. And so I've been thinking, why is that? Partly I think it's because of pride. We think better of ourselves than that. We don't want to think that we've really done that sin. Now we know that we're all sinners. The Bible tells us that. In fact, on your verse sheet, I have Ecclesiastes 7.20, and it says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. And yet it's hard for us to confess before God sometimes. Maybe we think that saying out loud would make it um, more real, and we want it to go away. Or maybe we think God doesn't really know about it. Although we know God knows about our sin. We read that last week with Psalm 90, verse 8, that those secret sins are in the light of God's presence. My husband's definition of confession is admitting to yourself and telling God what God already knows. Admitting to yourself and telling God what he already knows. And I read this definition of confession that I thought was really neat. Confession is a form of worship on which... Sins are acknowledged to God. You see that word acknowledge and admitting. You see those kind of words with um, confession. And have you ever thought of confession as a form of worship? It's worship because we are saying to God, you are holy and I am not. God is holy. God calls us to be painfully honest about our sin and guilt. And that's because we receive his mercy For he forgives us our sins and makes us clean. When we confess our sin to God, we receive pardon and purity. And that is why confession is good for the soul. Sin alienates us from God. And confession restores that relationship with him. So let's look at Psalm 51. And let's look at these uh, words of confession that David wrote. Now as you're turning there, in the heading it says, A Psalm of David... When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now that story is in 2 Samuel 11, 
one, and I want to, uh, you don't have to turn there because I know most of you probably looked at it in your homework, but I want to read a few verses and summarize it quickly because I think when we look at the situation that was happening when David wrote this psalm, it gives us some great, great insight. Verse 1 in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So the Israelite army is going out to fight the Ammonites, and usually it tells us here that the kings go out to become the commander of the troops. But David sends Joab to be commander instead of going himself. And so one evening, David gets up from his bed. He walks around on the roof of the palace, and he sees a beautiful woman across the way, and she's bathing. So he sends somebody to go find out who that woman is. They come back and say, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he says, well, bring her to me. And so they do, and it tells us that he slept with her. And as she goes back home, pretty soon he gets a note, I am pregnant. So David sends word to Joab, and he says, hey, send Uriah home. I want to talk to him. So Uriah comes home, and he says, hey, Uriah, how's the battle going? How's Joab? How are things? Joab tells him, and he says, now, go home, take it easy, you know, go see your wife. But Joab, I mean, uh, Uriah is a man of integrity. And so he's not going to do that. So he sleeps out in front of the gates with the servants. And the next day, David finds out about this. And he says, what, what was that? And he said, are you kidding? I'm not going home to find pleasure with my wife. The men are out in the battlefields, and they're sleeping on the ground. I can't do that. So David says, well, spend another day here and have dinner at my place tonight, and then you can go back to the battle. And so that happens, and it tells us that David got him drunk. But Uriah, even intoxicated, does not go and sleep with his wife. His integrity is seamless. In fact, he's such a man of integrity that when David thinks the only thing to do is kill him, he writes a letter to Joab and says, put Uriah in the front lines, let him be killed in battle. He gives the letter to Uriah to take to Joab. This is a man of integrity, which is sharply contrasted with David here. And that's what happens. Uriah goes back. He's put in the front lines. He's killed. Word comes back. Bathsheba mourns her husband. And after a time of mourning, it says David brings her into his home. And she becomes his wife. And the last sentence in chapter 11 says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And then we read in chapter 12 that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan, most of you probably talked about this, was a prophet of God. And prophets, true prophets, spoke the direct words of God to people. They were under direction of the Lord. And David knows Nathan because Nathan has already come to David and given him words from God, mainly words of blessing from the Lord. But this time Nathan comes and he tells him this story of two men in this town. One was very rich, had many sheep. The second was very poor, only had one little ewe lamb. And he loved this ewe lamb. And he kept it in his home, and his family loved it. And so when a traveler comes to town and goes to the rich man for food, the rich man, instead of killing one of his many sheep, go and take the little ewe lamb from the poor man, his only sheep, and kills it and gives it to the traveler. Verse 5 tells us, David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then we all know those words that Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. 
You are that man. Can you imagine? Think with me what David must have looked like. His eyes must have gotten wide and then his face crumpled. And I think he probably fell to his knees as the realization of his sin came crashing down upon him. And Nathan goes on to say, this is what God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul and I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And then Nathan goes on to tell him some of the consequences of David's sin. And then we read in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And I think he probably said it from his knees in a ragged cry of pain as he realizes, I have sinned against the Lord. And right there, you can write in your Bibles if you're in that, 2 Samuel 12, that is where David composes Psalm 51. This is his prayer of confession um, right at that moment. And later we see that Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not, you are not going to die. So let's turn to Psalm 51 and begin to read this psalm that David composed, this prayer of confession that he uh, wrote to pray to God. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. The first thing David does is call out to God to have mercy. Have mercy. And I think he might have shouted that out to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord. David is crushed. He recognizes his sin. And he knows that his sin can be punished with death. Even a king could be punished by death. And I'm not going to read it, but it's on your verse sheet in Exodus 21:14. So David calls out to God for mercy. Not because of who David is. Not because he deserves mercy. But because of who God is. David knows who God is. He knows that God is a God of unfailing love. And that Hebrew word for unfailing love is hesed. And it means loyal love, everlasting love, constant love. That is God's love for us. His unconditional, wide, abounding love. You know, we hear that so much that sometimes I think we almost take it for granted or we somehow the enormity of that kind of passes us by. It's sort of ho-hum. Oh yeah, God loves us. And I think sometimes that's why little kids are so neat because you see the enthusiasm in little kids. They understand that great love. You know, there's a book, um, I forget what it's called, but it's the little bunny and he says, Mother, I um, love you this much. And he puts his arms out. And then the mother bunny says, I love you this much. And her arms are wider. And so he says, well, I love you as high as I can jump. And he jumps up and the mother bunny says, I love you as much as I can jump. And of course, she jumps higher. And it goes on through the book until finally he's about to fall asleep. And he looks at the moon and he says, I love you to the moon. And as he goes to sleep, the mom says, I love you to the moon and back. And that's how it is with God's love. It's so much greater than we can imagine. It's so much higher and wider and deep. And it's unfailing, and it's an eternal, and it's everlasting. Do you know the love of God? David knew God's love. 
Psalm 103 tells us more about that. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. David understood God's love, and so he calls out to God for mercy. And he's honest, and he's humble, and he doesn't give any excuses. He knows that he does not deserve forgiveness, that God's forgiveness would be by grace alone. And David is asking for that kind of forgiveness. In fact, he wants total forgiveness. We see it in the way that he says three times these different verbs, blot out my transgressions, wash away, cleanse me. That word blot out has the connotation of writing a debt in a ledger. It's a legal term. You would write it in, and then when the debt was paid, you'd erase it, or you would mark out with ink. You would blot it out. And that word wash away means to scrub intensely, like clothes on a washboard. Um, Maybe you've had a stain on something, and you just rub it and rub it hard to get that stain out. Washing it intensely. And then cleanse means to make pure. And then we see different words, different nouns for David's um, sin. He says transgressions, and that has the connotation in Hebrew of rebellion. Often our sin is rebellion against God. Iniquity means crooked, crooked, devious, scheming, and our sin can be like that. And then he uses the word sin, and in Hebrew that means failure. Failure, failure to meet up to God's standard. The first step in confession is to call out for God's mercy. If we see our sin honestly, we know that there's no justification, and our only hope is God's mercy. So on your outline I have, we can begin, begin there, we can begin our confession by asking for God's mercy. And then the second thing we do is to acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our sin honestly. We admit what God already knows. And we see David doing that in verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Now, I thought of four blocks to true confession, and there may be more than that. But the first one is blame others. We blame others. We don't want to take responsibility, so we look for someone else to blame. And we learn that. Little kids know that. Little Dylan, my sweet and precious and wonderful grandson, um, Hallie wasn't even a month old. And Rachel said something to him, and he said, and I can't remember the story, but he goes, it's that chubby girl. And... uh, (laughs) And I laughed because I thought, hey, do you guys have brothers? Why do they call us chubby? I mean, my brother's words, chubby, chubby, two by four, can't get through the back. Okay, that's totally not part of the lesson. But I thought, what is it that our brothers have to call us chubby? I don't get it. Anyway, blaming others, we blame others. The second thing, and this is what I like to do, is rationalization. I like to say to God, you know, that's not a critical spirit, Lord. That's that mind that you gave me you gave me, to think about this and critique it. And, you know, Deb, it's a critical spirit. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be trying to make an excuse to God. Call a spade a spade and confess that critical spirit to the Lord. The third thing that blocks true confession, I think, is fear. We don't know God. We think of God as someone with a club that's going to beat us over the head or it's a policeman that's going to drag us off to jail or whatever that connotation of God is. We don't know the love of God like David 
knew it. So we are fearful and we hide from God and we try to um, turn away from him. And then the fourth thing is unaware. And that's sometimes hard for us to think, that we can be unaware of our sin. But we see this with David. It's amazing to think that he did all this horrendous stuff and somehow was in such denial that he was unaware of what happened. And I think we combat that by asking God to reveal to us our sin. And when somebody comes to us with a criticism, maybe instead of getting defensive, we need to listen and carefully consider, is that a sin I need to lift up to the Lord? David didn't have these these blocks to true confession. He um, honestly offers no excuses, no justification. Instead, we see David weighed down with his sin. It's almost like stones on his back crushing him. Have you ever felt weighed down like that? Weighed down by your sin? I had a first grade teacher tell me the story of a little boy in her class. He was kind of a pill, but he held honesty with high regard. And so he didn't tell lies. But this one day, he was in the room. He was very sad, very downcast. He didn't participate. And even at recess when they went out, he was over in the corner sitting out, not talking to anyone with his head down. So she went up and she said, what's wrong? Are you sick? And he wouldn't answer. He just shook his head. And so she went about her day. And later that day, the little boy came to her and he confessed that he had told a lie. And even though he knew there was going to be a penalty to telling that lie, she said his face brightened up and even smiled as he went back to his desk and began to participate with the others. The guilt and the burden of our sin can weigh us down. David feels the burden of his sin, and in humility he recognizes that his sin is ultimately against God and that God is just and right however he judges David. Now, he has wronged Uriah. He has great offense against Uriah and Bathsheba, but ultimately his sin is against the Lord. We know that because Nathan said that God said, why did you despise the word of the Lord and do what is evil in my eyes? Now, let's go on and read verse 5 and 6, and these can be a little bit misunderstood. Verse 5 says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. David is not trying to justify his sin here. Instead, he's acknowledging that he was born a sinner. We are all born with that propensity to sin. It is a fundamental condition of our existence. And yet, we are accountable for our sin because God's desire is truth. And wisdom. Eugene Peterson says it like this Our experience of sin does not consist in doing some bad things, but in being bad. It is not a temporary lapse into error. Praying our sin isn't resolving not to sin anymore, it is discovering what God has resolved to do with us as sinners. So let's look at these next verses, 7 through 12, and see what does God resolve to do with us as sinners. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is asking God for two things, forgiveness and cleansing. David wants pardon and purity. And that is what we want also. We want our sin to be forgiven and we want to be clean again. We want to be right with God. Verses 7 through 9 talk about the forgiveness part. And he uses those verbs that we saw in verse 1 and 2, but now they're in reverse order. Cleanse me, wash me, blot out. And we see that cleanse me with hyssop. That means, some of you may have discussed this in your group, hyssop was a bushy bush. And the priest would take a branch of that, and when they would come to the altar um, to confess their sin, there would be an animal sacrifice, and then the priest would dip the hyssop, this bushy branch, into the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the altar. And this represented the removal of sin by the shedding of blood. Today we know about the once and forever sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus, who shed his blood and died so that the penalty of my sin would be paid. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And when I confess and acknowledge the work of Christ on my behalf, I am forgiven of my sin, and God sees me through the blood of Christ, clean and holy. And we know that throughout the New Testament, but I have a couple verses because I think this is so important on your verse sheet. Matthew 26, 28, this is Jesus speaking. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, my blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews 10, 10 says, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once and for all. David talks about the cleansing in verses 10 and 11, the purity. David wants inner renewal. He wants his heart changed. And when he uses the word create in me a pure heart, that word create is telling us that only God can do this. Only God can change our hearts and make it pure. Only God can give us spiritual inward renewal. That create is the same create that Genesis 1, when God created the earth, Only God can do that. Verse 11 um, tells us uh, that David is calling out to God and asking not to be cast from his presence or to have the Holy Spirit taken from him. That would be the worst thing for David, to be away from the presence of God. And we know in the Old Testament that God's Spirit would come on certain individuals to empower them for uh, special service. The prophets had the Spirit of God. Also, uh, when Samuel went to anoint David, and you can read this later, it's on your verse sheet in 1 Samuel 16, 13, it tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. David also would know that the Holy Spirit was taken away from King Saul when he disobeyed. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he disobeyed God and turned away from God. And when Samuel went to him with his sin... Saul's response was to try to justify his sin and to say, well, I didn't really do that. I really meant for God. He did not accept it. And so God took away his spirit from Saul. We know that today, when we place our faith in Jesus, at that moment of belief, 
We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and sealed, and he cannot be taken away from us. We read that in Ephesians um, 1, 7. Let's read these verse, this verse because it's pretty um, important. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And verse 13, Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. From the moment we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until we go to be with God in glory. What sweet assurance that is. What sweet joy. And this is what David is asking for in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That is why confession is good for the soul. It brings salvation. It brings that right relationship with God, our loving Father. Sometimes it is hard for us to imagine that God can and will forgive us and love us and wants to be in an intimate relationship with it, but it's true. Mother Teresa said this quote, if you feel the weight of your sins, do not be afraid. He is a loving father. God's mercy is much greater than we can imagine. We can know Calvary's love. The word of God assures us, and if you've ever experienced the forgiveness of God, then you know that yourself. On your verse sheet, I put some of these, um, some of my very favorite verses that give us confidence that God does and will forgive us. If you get in a bind and forget that, sometimes we do. Maybe you want to mark these in your Bible or put them in the front of your Bible. Verses on forgiveness, God's forgiveness. And let's just read them because they're so beautiful. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. In Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, that far, that's how far, the east can never come to the west. That so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We can experience God's forgiveness and the result is joy. David knew this. The path of sin is a dark path, and in that path, neither hope nor comfort can be found. It's in forgiveness that we find the joy of the Lord. And even though God doesn't remove his spirit from us, we just talked about that, we have salvation, it can't be taken from us, we still find ourselves doing those things that we don't want to do, sinning against God. And so we need ongoing confession, not for salvation, We need ongoing confession so that our relationship with God stays open and growing. We need confession to keep our relationship with God open and growing. 1 John 1, 9 assures us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So confession becomes a part of our worship. And what are the benefits? What happens when we receive forgiveness? David tells us a few things here. 
Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So, how does David teach other sinners about God's ways? Well, first, go back to the heading again. It says, for the director of music. Now, I don't know what I've been thinking all these years, but when I came to realize that David wanted this prayer to be sung in temple worship, it kind of blew me away. Can you picture David standing there in the temple in front of everyone and the choir singing this psalm of confession? This was not a hidden secret prayer of confession. This would be out in the open. It would be sung throughout the ages, everyone knowing David's horrendous sin, what that must have been like. And yet I think David, in in his humility, was glad that this was a public expression of his crime and of his penitence, because from this psalm, others would know of God's mercy and compassion and love and forgiveness. David also wrote several other psalms of confession along with this. There is six or seven people um, differ. A couple of them are Psalm 6, if you want to look at these later. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 130. These are called the penitential psalms of David. And he wrote this after he experienced God's forgiveness. They're scattered throughout the Bible, which I think sort of uh, indicates how we need confession throughout our walk with the Lord. It's an ongoing um, thing that we need to be aware of. I just wanted to read you in Psalm 32. Don't turn there, but you can read it later. Um, It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And he says in verses 4 and 5 these words. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. First thing, David says he will teach other sinners the ways of God. And then secondly, he says, I will sing and praise God. Rather than remaining sad and depressed over our sinful actions... There comes a point when we should praise God and experience joy that comes with forgiveness. The crushing stone, that burden of our guilt, is lifted. We've stepped from the dark path into light. Now, forgiveness does not mean that there will be no consequences of our sin. Generally, there are consequences, and sometimes they can be very painful. How do we respond to that? David kind of tells us some of that in verses 16 and 17. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You talked about this in your homework. Um, Broken and contrite heart can mean many things. It can be repentance or confession, um, genuine sorrow. Um, I think of it as humility. It's humility. And we need to walk with God in humility. 
Humility is the expression of that genuine penitence, that genuine sorrow, genuine repentance. On your outline, I think I have a, an R there. Humility is the expression of genuine repentance. In humility, we do not take our sin lightly. We're not cavalier about our sin. And in humility, we also can accept God's forgiveness and go forward walking with God. So both of those things happen with the humble person that confesses. They're not cavalier. They realize the great cost, the grace that it takes for God to forgive sin. But they're also not paralyzed by their sin. They can move forward with God. Forgiveness should bring joyful praise to our lips. Now, I want to talk about these last two verses, um, 18 and 19, and let me read them to you. They're kind of interesting, and they can be controversial. Some of you may have read some of that. It says, In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, because the words, um, build up the walls of Jerusalem, are there, Many people think that this had to be after the Babylonian captivity. And you know that Nehemiah came back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been torn down in the battle of, of Nebuchadnezzar when the Babylonians came to take over Judah. But I don't think this has to be necessarily the case. I think David was also kind of reinforcing the walls during his reign. Or it could be metaphorical language. It could be figurative language. We know that we see a lot of that in the Psalms. And David is just saying to God, bless your people. Bless your people. David would not want his sin to negatively affect God's people. And he knows full well that it very well could. He's asking God, humbly accept our worship and bless the people. Oftentimes, our sin does affect others adversely. And it's really painful when it's those that we love the most. But I love um, the book of Joel. Joel um, is a little book in the Minor Prophets, and it tells about a plague that God brings to Judah. It's because of their sin. And the locust plague, it's a locust plague, eats everything in sight and destroys it. But God says, return to me, repent and return to me. And he says, I will restore the years that the locusts have taken away. God's grace and mercy is that great that oftentimes the consequences of our sin are lessened by God's mercy. I've prayed this prayer myself and seen God's action. I've prayed with others that have prayed that God would take the years the locusts have destroyed away with regard to their children, things that their children had seen. Or maybe they've asked that God would protect their children from the sin of their parents, and they've seen that over time happen. Maybe it's a material blessing that God gives after sin has caused a financial disaster. God is loving and merciful. God wants to pardon us and purify us. I wanted to close with a little uh, hymn. It's a favorite hymn of mine. Baptist hymn. It's got great meaning for me personally when I accepted Christ. Um, It was written by an invalid in the early 1800s, and she wasn't a believer. And in her 30s, a Swiss evangelist came to her, and she said, I don't know how to come to God. I don't know how to confess. And he said, come just as you are. 
And so she did that. She confessed to God just as she was, and then she wrote the hymn, Just As I Am. And I want to um, read just a couple of the verses and let you think about them in closing. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Let's shout to the Lord in confession and experience pardon and purity, for it is good for our soul. O Heavenly Father, your love is so broad and wide and deep and amazing that we can't even fully comprehend it. And yet we know, Lord, that you are loving, that you are merciful, that you are forgiving. Father, that you want our worship of confession. Father, I pray that from the words of Psalm 51, we would be able to come to you more honestly, more openly, more humbly with the confession of our sins. Father, thank you for these women. I pray that you would bless them, that your grace and mercy would be poured down upon them. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.